to Talking Sense, the Sensibility Podcast. I'm your co-host, Kat. I'm your co-host, Erin. And this week, we have a guest. Um, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. So I'm Olaf Stando. Uh, I am um, I live in Burn Island in Fife. And yeah, I currently work for HQ, um, SMP HQ, that is just to clarify. Um, <laughs> as, a, as a digital officer, so I've been dealing a lot with the, with the campaign um, and sort of developing the digital response in this really unprecedented campaign. But apart from that, I'm also a elected vice president of UJS, which is a sort of umbrella organization for Jewish uh, students across Europe, elected on an explicitly sort of pro-Palestinian platform for the first time in the um, organization's history. Um, apart from that, I was also an active activist in uh, trade unions. I'm a member of, uh, of Unite the Union. Um, and yeah, just generally a person on the, on the left who enjoys rambling uh, about socialist topics and and listening to um, to good progressive podcasts like like this one, so definitely a big fan, and I'm, I'm looking forward to more. I've listened to one episode so far, but I'm sold. So keep it going. Welcome home. <laughs> you found your people. <laughs> <laughs> and welcome to the immigrant zone, right? Because we're like the yes, yes. <laughs> no, yeah. I was I was born in I was born in Poland uh, and moved to uh, Scotland when I was nine and then lived in England for a bit as well just moving from London to, to Scotland so now in, in the process so yeah we're, we're all quite diverse here yeah. it's quite exciting yes yeah. <laughs> yes two episodes in and we're still an all immigrants so. <laughs> you're our first dude <laughs> welcome <laughs> well yeah. very honored to have that badge of honor if, if it is a badge of honor yeah I don't, I, don't, I don't know if it is it might become a badge of infamy. We don't know yet. What am I getting myself into? Yeah. All right. So on to uh, heavier topics, right? Yeah. So so I'm coming at it from a very like like a non-expert. Do you guys want to do the background on it or kind of tell tell me what's the latest? I'm going to start at the very beginning because let there be light. I'm kidding. That would be, yeah, that would be, I mean, actually, in this case, that would be, like, literal eternity. Maybe Olaf should run us through these. (laughs) Yeah, go for it. Well, essentially, the conflict has, well, this episode of the conflict has started with the expansion of Israeli settlements on Sheikh Jarrah, which is a Palestinian uh, neighborhood of East Jerusalem, which in itself was occupied in 1967 after the Six-Day War, uh, when Israel occupied the, the vast swaths of what is now known as the West Bank and Gaza and Sinai, etc. Um, and this particular sort of outbreak of the conflict was centered around two things. It was centered around the, the massive police presence uh, on the Temple Mount complex, which is you know the second holiest site in Islam. Um, um, during the holy month of Ramadan, it was seen as a provocation uh, where the police is essentially impeding access to the Islam's holy site for a lot of the East Jerusalem residents. And then on top of that came that uh, expansion of settlements, which was met by big protests from uh, Sheikh Jarrah residents, but also residents across uh, Palestine. Uh, there's been a mounting sort of set-in peaceful protest where people would come from all parts of East Jerusalem to, to sit uh, essentially on the roads, do blockades and have iftars to break the, the fast of Ramadan every day. Entirely peaceful and you had quite a few incidents where the Israeli police would just break up the protesters and try to disperse the crowds. Um, yeah, so, so that was the sort of context of it. And then um, Hamas threatened that they would start firing rockets if Israel doesn't stop the provocation. 
uh, Israel obviously didn't um, didn't listen to that, and Hamas did as they said they would. They started firing a barrage of rockets uh, into Israeli territory, and obviously, as, as soon as that happened, Israel just responded with you know fire and fury um, by you know tripling, quadrupling its uh, attacks on Gaza, resulting in a death of I think it was two hundred and fifty. It has developed into a very grave situation. I think a lot of people expect this to become uh, something much bigger, another uprising uh, or an escalation to a much longer war. Um, Thankfully, you could say uh, a ceasefire has been agreed after about a week of fighting. But, but, you know, that that doesn't take away from the fact that lots of lives have been needlessly lost. Um, Entire buildings, uh, most of Gaza has been bombed out and shelled uh, to dust. And... uh, yeah, it's pretty tragic to see. Yeah, I um, like I don't want to gloss over how bad it was that a lot of the like some really terrible stuff happened on Eid and like during the the last week of Ramadan when people have been fasting during daylight hours for a month. I mean, I used to live in Bahrain and I wasn't even like completely fasting, but it was you know illegal to eat on the street. So like even just that little bit of impingement. Everybody felt it there. So, like, it was not the time to escalate tensions. Yeah, I mean, you could say that was even part of the premeditated um, provocation. You know, people obviously being already quite tired, quite frustrated. Um, and you have the police, you know, trying to disrupt the celebration on one of the holiest days and the holiest sites. Um, knowing that this is going to spark tension and the Israeli government essentially using this. But I, my theory... Um, is that the Israeli government led by Netanyahu tried to essentially bolster itself. Um, one of the best political currencies in, in Israeli politics right now, sadly, is how assertive you are towards the Palestinians. Um, and, you know, that, that was a very clear attempt from Netanyahu to show that, look, we're standing our ground, we're not going to tolerate dissent. Um, and, yeah, at the, at the end of the day, this failed because Netanyahu's on his, on his way out, um, most likely. But, you know, that, that provocation was really callous on Eid of all days, really, really callous. Mm-hmm. I think that is um, something interesting to talk about, about um, Netanyahu, as I know everyone's tired of comparing everything to Trump, but there's something Trumpian about, about Netanyahu, um, both in terms of just like wanting power for power's sake, um, willing to do almost anything to avoid losing power. Um, probably criminal charges for a bunch of other things once he loses that power and also having a very weird at large adult son (laughs) i always think (laughs) it must really piss netanyahu off because he's been in power for like a dozen years it must be really piss him off to be called trumpian honestly (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. like this flash in the pan as opposed to like actually like i one of the like kind of unfortunately giants of like global politics for the last yeah yeah i I think he sees he sees himself more as a sort of matt rushmore um character you know lion king of politics uh, rather than trump (laughs) but but he has used trump to to his electoral advantage massively because i remember i was in israel uh, quite a few times right i was in israel and palestine about six seven times and I was there during the last of the many elections, uh, I think 2019, mm-hmm. one of the many elections. And uh, the amount of Trump posters that were everywhere, all around Jerusalem, even liberal suburbs of, of Tel Aviv, just gigantic sort of Trump and Netanyahu banners. Um, it was seen as a massive electoral asset for Netanyahu to be close to Trump. And, you know, sadly, that was a vote, win- vote winner to a lot of people. And the sad thing is, the infuriating thing has been Biden's response to all this really 
really upset me as an American. I was like, oh, I thought I was okay with you. I didn't really, I didn't really share your politics, but I was putting up with you. And then you did this. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it stems from ignorance. Um, and, and just, yeah, as you say, the lack of presence of, of Muslim people in, in life and in growing up. I do take a lot of hope from the fact that, you know, you have people like Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and, and so on who haven't been a feature of American politics a couple of years ago and they are now. And, and you know, that's something that can only be a good thing. Of course, they're in a minority and it's a difficult struggle for them. You know, it can only be a good thing and can be a platform for the left to, to build from, I think. I mean, Biden's making some serious foreign policy errors apart from Israel-Palestine situation. I mean, hmm. you know, taking a pretty lax line on Russian aggression in both Ukraine and sort of involvement in what happened in Belarus. So Biden's not really doing great on the foreign policy stakes, just in general. Yeah, it's not a vote getter. So yeah, you know, I feel like, you know, Biden's trying to play the role of this sort of cuddly appeaser to everybody. You know, he, he ran on this platform of, you know, anti-politics, essentially, like, I'll just bring you calm, you know, we don't have to talk about any of this. And I think he, he's not trying to escalate tensions right now, because one, you know, there's not an election anytime soon, so he doesn't have anything to lose. And two, because he's probably just quite tired of it already. Mm. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure if he knows exactly where he stands on this. So instead, he just takes a takes an easy position of keeping quiet, which is upsetting for a country that claims to be a world leader. Um, whether it is or isn't is a different question. But yeah, I've been pleasantly surprised by some of the speeches coming from Congress by the the people you're talking about, Ilan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, uh, Ayanna Presley, Cory. Bush really had some really good stuff to say. Mm -hmm. There's something that I heard over and over again in their speeches that I kind of wanted to bring up because I also heard it here. I went to the Friends of Palestine meeting recently and they were talking about using the language of apartheid, saying that it, it right now it's an apartheid state. And the more we clarify that, the more people use that language, the more it will become apparent because it is... Am I am I correct in saying it is factually apartheid? Uh, yes. So so actually, so Human Rights Watch, which is a very you know respected mainstream Western organization, has recently put out a report calling Israel an apartheid state. And um, just after that, an Israeli organization called B'Tselem, which is brilliant by the way, if you haven't heard of them, check them out. Um, B'Tselem, uh, they have also labeled Israel in itself as the the state, you know, from River Jordan to the sea as an apartheid entity. Um, but essentially, Israel, after the nation-state law was passed in the Knesset, I think in 2016, 2017, has... Um, I it was 2018. 2018, sorry, yeah. Time has been flowing like crazy. <laughs> <You> can't <laughs> <believe it was laughs> 2018. Anything in the before times is just one time, really. Right. Well, anything before 2016 was just wonderful. and, and, and Yeah. Anyway, but, um, but yeah, the, the nation-state law has kind of entrenched the, the supremacy of the Jews in law. Um, by essentially formalizing what has been already informally in place. Um, you know, different rights that Israeli Jews are being given as a normal democratic principle and, you know, rights which Arabs are being denied on a daily basis. To, to me, what really defines apartheid in the Israeli context is that obviously Israeli citizens have the freedom of movement to travel anywhere. Uh, apart from Gaza, they can travel throughout the West Bank, uh, obviously between different settlements, they can travel uh, anywhere abroad. Whereas if you're a Palestinian uh, citizen, uh, well, you're not actually a citizen because there isn't a, a passport. If you're a Palestinian um, 
subject, you don't have that freedom of movement, not just between um, Palestine and Israel, but actually between different parts of Palestine. And actually within Palestine itself, because of the, the, the settlements regime, Palestinians live in this fragmented uh, system of enclaves and, you know, receive a lot less rights, basic rights of movement than Israelis. Yeah, that's something I didn't really understand until recently, because when you look at a map and you look at like what is sort of officially Israel and then look at what is officially the West Bank and officially Gaza, the West Bank looks very big when mm-hmm. you just look at it on a map. Um, mm-hmm. But then what I didn't realize until recently is actually how much of that is under military occupation or has restricted travel. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty crazy. I mean, obviously, that's the the big bit of West Bank and the big bit of Gaza under the original UN plan. Um, and obviously since 67, when Israel occupied the West Bank, uh, there's been, uh, you know, building of settlements, which has increased. Uh, and the pace of it is probably only going to increase with, with the new government. Um, and that's a problem because you've, you've got a system of roads that are just leading to Jewish settlements. You've got settlers uh, now accounting for about 700,000 people. And there's about, you know, four million people or so living in, in Palestine. So so it's a rapidly increasing population that isn't just living there and minding its own business. A lot of the time it's being quite aggressive towards Palestinian residents. Um so it's it is it's quite striking actually, but when you look at a map, you know, it's often quite misleading. You think, oh Palestine's quite big, you know, it's about the same size as, as Israel. It isn't. Uh, and and most worryingly there isn't really a state to build from because it's so fragmented. You you can't have a state that's got, you know, 25 different like pockets basically just bridged together with a road yeah you can't have a state entirely made out of exclaves yeah i mean so it's like scotland beginning in bristol and then going like a tiny road to worcester and then a tiny little bit to birmingham and then a tiny little bit to inverness but it's separated in the middle by manchester like it just wouldn't work would it like yeah <laughs> it'd just be a very weird shape so yeah 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 wow yeah and so also, like, people will criticize, like, who's running Palestine. And it's kind of like, hey, can we have some perspective of, like, how easy would it be to govern mm. that? You know, like, just so, it's got to be so stressful just to live your life. Like, we think Brexit's bad. Like, Yeah, I mean, we, we can be grateful that we're not under military occupation. I, look, I think a lot of the time we do ignore the vast level of corruption within the Palestinian Authority, and that is something that has to be uh, recognised. Uh, and obviously we have to understand the Palestinian government as two factions that fight relentlessly between each other. Uh, in fact, Fatah and Hamas probably hate each other as much as they hate the so-called Israeli enemy. So so that is an issue. Um, I think people have, be, people have become so disillusioned with politics in Palestine, especially people our age, that they often just turn to, you know, protest, uh, express in different forms, you know, whether whether it's violence, whether it's art, or whether it's graffiti or whatever else. Um, there's different ways of, of resistance. But the actual engagement in politics and the fact that there hasn't been an election in Palestine for over a decade uh, makes people very disillusioned with, with democracy and with politics. And to be honest, the Palestinian government is very much powerless in many aspects but it's also very much kind of entrenched within itself corrupt there's there's been reports of you know many palestinian leaders having big mansions all over the middle east etc so so that that is a problem but it's definitely not the cause of the current suffering that the palestinians endure the cause is the occupation 
There's always grifters and opportunists in every nation. Yeah, especially when there's kind of chaos and um, sort of not really an ability to establish sort of the institutions of democracy. Exactly. It just creates that vacuum, you know, when people don't really care, not just to get involved in politics, but also to help us just to, to account. You just have politicians acting with impunity, and that's the case anywhere. So that's partly why it's so important to get people involved in politics and get people chatting about politics and grill politicians relentlessly on Twitter. <laughs> um, of elections, um, we should possibly just turn our attention back to, to Israel for a second, because um, not that there was an election, but we finally got the outcome of an election. <laughs> um, and this is something um, exciting. So I think there's, there's, there's actually kind of two issues here um, that we're sort of talking about parallel to each other. Um, and one is the condition of sort of Palestinians in Palestine, and the other is sort of Arab citizens of Israel. And uh, with this new coalition, this is the first time, I believe, mm -hmm. one of the Arab parties has yeah. been brought into government. Yeah, it is. A couple of weeks ago, Olaf and I were talking, uh, we were texting each other, talking about coalition governments, and he was explaining to me how insane the cobbled together coalition is. So I want to hear, I want to hear this like with your voice because I think it's gotten crazier, hasn't it? Oh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's the messiest spaghetti splattered all over the Israeli uh, play uh, ever since 1948. I mean, look, you have eight different parties from by Israeli standards, far left, but by European standards, center left, Meretz, uh, which is a sort of pro-Palestinian, nominal pro-Palestinian party in Israel, which is the tiniest uh, fours in the Knesset with, with four seats, all the way to the far-right party Yamina uh, with seven seats, which actually picks the prime minister, Naftali Bennett. Um, and and in the middle, you have uh, various sort of centre-left and centre-right groupings led by the opposition leader, Yari Lapid, who won 17 seats out of 120. The crazy thing about the Israeli system is one, there isn't really a, a threshold for how many parties can contest an election. Uh, so every every different election you have, you know, lots and lots of tiny parties. I think there was about 30 different lists standing in this election. Um, so it can get very, very confusing. And, you know, no party actually got more than 25% uh, of the vote, I think. Likud was the biggest party led by Netanyahu by, by some distance. But most parties got about 5 6 7% of the vote. Um, so it's very, very difficult, obviously not, not just to enact manifestos because, you know, a manifesto is not going to matter if you won four out of 120 seats. Um, but it's also very difficult to, to keep a government that is ideologically coherent because you have eight different parties in this, in this coalition. And the only thing that unites them is the hate for Netanyahu. There isn't literally a single policy area that unites them, that they agree on. And actually, I, what, what I think it's going to be it is going to be a government that is desperately trying to deflect on the difficult issues like the Palestinian crisis, like the settlement crisis, uh, even like big questions of the economy. And under the pretense of COVID recovery, they'll they'll just plod along and sort of be very ineffectual just for the sake of keeping Netanyahu out of power. So yeah, eight different parties and Naftali Bennett, a leader of the far-right party with seven out of 120 seats. So, you know, less than 10% of the seats. Uh, will be prime minister for the first two years. Yikes. Yeah. So I, I get the sense that even though this looks like it it might not be great and it might fall apart, it might be a nightmare, It's it's been welcomed as any change is good. We just need to get rid of him. We yeah. need to get Netanyahu out. The videos of the protesters celebrating was quite lovely. I think what is positive from it is obviously 
the the nominal left is part of it. Um, so there is going to be a ministry or two going to the Meretz party, which is the kind of most pro-Palestinian voice in Israel. Not still a Zionist party, but but the most pro-Palestinian voice. Um, and the Labour Party, which, again, uh, has moved a bit to the left in Israel. So so they're going to get some ministry, some influence. Um, and that can hopefully legitimise them a little bit more and, and maybe elevate their profile for the next elections, which are probably going to be in a couple of months' time <laughs> or whatever, as, as is the new tradition. The good thing is, obviously, Netanyahu is not going to be able to escape uh, prison, potentially, for corruption charges that he's facing, um, because he was you know desperately trying to cling on to the office uh, in hope that it gives him immunity. And obviously now he's going to face all these charges in court and, and he might end up in prison, which would be astonishing and brilliant. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> I mean, he sounds like he deserves it. I'm not huge on like, send him to jail, but... Lock him up. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, that's not. Not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, we're not, we're not in that territory. But um, so that's the positive. The negative of it is really that people are so kind of split between Netanyahu versus anti-Netanyahu they're not seeing the the nuance in who's actually in that government uh the fact that the first two years and these are going to be the crucial two years um are going to be led by Naftali Bennett who's this you know far-right settler nationalist figure who's actually Netanyahu's chief of staff for many years he was the one who elevated Netanyahu to, to the profile he, he's in yeah from everything I've read like Naftali Bennett's like even more pro-settler than Netanyahu is. Oh, yeah. I mean, he literally represents the settler party. Yeah. Um, but I um, I don't know if this is just that I am a relentless optimist, but that, that photo of the leaders of all of the parties in the coalition mm-hmm. sort of sitting together, signing mm-hmm. their agreement, that just filled me with so much hope because even though, yes, there is this awful far-right party mm-hmm. that is part of the coalition which actually only six of their um mps have joined yeah uh, one of them refused so they're, yeah. they're down to only six in the coalition i mean in any parliamentary system the only real power a prime minister has is their majority and their ability yeah. to pick their cabinet he, he can't pick his cabinet because it's a coalition they've all agreed on what ahead of time together and he has no majority so it sort of seems like he can be hemmed in by like actually the 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 other parties mm. vastly outnumber him. Yes, I mean, yes, yes and no, because, you know, he's still going to be the face of, of Israel internationally in the next two years. At a very fraught and fragile time for Palestinian-Israeli relations, and he's definitely not going to fix those relations. But also, you know, developing the relationship with Biden and, and potentially swaying Biden more to the right or, or the EU more, more to the right, um, and, and really being very assertive on this idea that you know, the West Bank belongs to Israel and essentially paving the way for a possible annexation. Now, an annexation may not happen because of how fragile this coalition is. And as I said, they, they don't want to risk anything or take big leaps, probably. But he's still going to be the face of Israel and, and someone who's much more brazen on the sort of settler nationalist side, someone who's much more shameless about wanting to annex the West Bank someone who previously bragged in election videos about how many Palestinian Arabs he's killed as a soldier. Ooh. You know, that... that. Yikes. Yes, it's not Netanyahu, but it's still somebody who is going to have the reins of power for, for the two years. I agree with you, Aaron, that it's going to be, you know, it, he's going to be limited. So he's going to be more of a figurehead rather than an actual, um, you know, person with power. But but symbolism matters, especially in conflicts like that where it's, where it's so fragile, you know. So the other guy, Yair Lapid, who will be the foreign minister yeah. 
they said he's like a secular centrist politician and that's kind of a big deal in Israel, right? Yeah, I mean, so, so he used to be a TV presenter. He used to be one of the main uh, sort of TV anchors and journalists and so on. He's uh, he's your, if Willie Rennie, if Willie Rennie was, was big in... Um, oh, God. <laughs> ...was big in Israel, but without the stunts, you know, I don't know, I don't know if Yola Pete has ever wrestled a sheep, but, you know, he's essentially, he's essentially a sort of mixture of Joe Swinson and Willie Rennie, you know, a sort of good on grievance but not very oh, good on no. vision not not offering much not offering much pattern symbolism which, which look in the israeli context having a willy rennie is very reassuring well, i would <laughs> i would love to have willy rennie in charge in israel don't get me wrong <laughs> probably the only country where, where i would stomach this <laughs> yeah um <laughs> maybe is he bloodless like keir starmer is he just like Meh. yeah I, th- I think he's more of a keir starmer sort of you know keir starmer's only policy really is not being boris johnson but there isn't much of a vision there isn't much of a coherent... It's like a disappointment, but at this point, yeah. a disappointment would be a step up, right? I mean... <laughs> I mean, look, he's got nice hair, right? Kiss Starmer's Kirst, got nice hair. Uh, actually, quite a similar hairstyle to, to you know, Lapita. So maybe that's just the centrist token. If you want to be a characterless, yeah. uh, bloodless yeah. centrist, you need to have nice hair and just, uh, you know, not stand for much, but look presentable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... I don't know. Like again, I'm probably just a relentless optimist, but I feel like every time there is, and I think this is a victory, getting rid of Netanyahu. Every time there is something that shows that things can change through the democratic process, and that people who are so different from each other can sit down in one room together and find a way to at least work together towards some common goal, you know, peacefully. To go, that guy's an asshole. We want rid of him. <laughs> yeah. Even if all they can agree on is this guy is such a yeah. dangerous asshole that we need to work together on this one thing that strengthens the cause of mm. peaceful democratic resolutions to, to 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 any issue. And I just, I have some hope that there is something to at least be built on now. Aw, Aaron. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, I share that. I share that in a sense. Like, it is. It is nice to hear that people have hope. I mean, I look. Anything is better without Netanyahu, right? The fact is that it's not going to be politicians in the Knesset who solve the big inherent issues like the occupation, like the developing looming apartheid, etc. It's going to be civil society. It's going to be people on the ground protesting, demanding change. It's going to be Jews in the diaspora, but also people in Israel realizing that. Yes, we have to call the spade a spade. It is apartheid. And until there is that realization, and until there is a wider conversation about not just talking about a two-state solution, but actually making it happen, or if not a two-state solution, then a one state that actually brings Palestinians and Jews together. Uh, until there's that conversation with, with actual tangible solutions, there isn't going to be much movement. Uh, but there's actually going to be a vacuum uh, where the settlers are going to keep building settlements, where the system is inherently uh, prioritizing Israeli interests over Palestinian interests, and the Palestinian state's going to get less and less viable, while there is a more you know respectable face or respectable coalition uh, instead of Netanyahu. So, so it can be an illusion. I am hopeful for the moment because it, it, it does mean that for the first time since 48, an Israeli Arab party is involved. And actually, even though they only have four seats out of uh, 120, um, they are going to be the kingmakers, essentially. Uh, you know, they can pull out any at any time. 
Uh, Mansour Abbas has made it quite clear that he's going to be fighting for uh, Arab citizen interests within Israel. What he has made clear as well is that he's not going to be talking much about Palestine and very much care about the welfare of Arab citizens of Israel, which is about 20-25% of people, uh, which is, you know, long overdue and it's really, really important. So, yeah, I, I think I think there's hope to be taken from that, but I would be cautious about that. There's been, while Netanyahu was in power, there was no hope to build on anything. Mm. No, now there's yeah, that's a true. roadblock. It's, it's, not, it's not that everything's done, but it's like a major roadblock has been moved out of the way. It's interesting though, because I think the one thing that keeps this government united and the one thing that keeps this government going so that Yair Lapid, the, the centrist guy, can take over from Naftali Bennett in two years, because that is the precondition, you know, Yair Lapid's not going to take over until 2023. The one thing that keeps this government going is Netanyahu's presence as leader of the opposition. Because Netanyahu's not going away. He's made it clear that he's going to be trying to undermine that government every single time, every budget. Uh, he's going to be trying to he's going to be trying to get defectors. Uh, and by the way, two I think two or three defectors from this coalition into the Kurd means that this government is toast. So it's very very fragile. Um, and and the fact that Netanyahu's going to be out there opposing and being the sort of you know po- polarizing figure. That's going to keep this coalition together. I think as soon as Netanyahu steps down from Likud as leader, uh, that coalition can fall apart at any moment. So, but that's probably not happening until he's actually in jail for... Exactly. Because right? so. he's so obsessed with power. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. Oh, human beings. <laughs> See, I, I'm not as... I guess, in a way, I'm optimistic, but I'm more like, well, it's still shit, but it's... a different kind of shit <laughs> maybe you can maybe deal with it a little bit better maybe it's easier to pick up and shovel away you know yeah oh. you, you'd hope you'd hope that shit made out of eight different components is a bit more solid um, know, it's like not diarrhea anymore the, the logic the logic of that is <laughs> sorry i have children so i just a cat you're such a mom <laughs> yeah i'm sorry <laughs> I'm really classy yeah. like that. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's see. Is there anything we could say to kind of wrap this conversation up? Is there anything we should have asked you but didn't? I, I, I think I'd quite like to talk about, because obviously I'm, I'm, I'm Jewish, so I'd quite like to talk about the sort of accusations of anti-Semitism or the wrong sort of Jew that I've often faced, which, which is really what it's about, the way that, Jewish people in the diaspora who obviously haven't experienced Israel, haven't been to the army, haven't experienced the undoubtedly difficult life that it is in Israel, talk about Israel. I, I, I'm often denied the opportunity to express my views on Israel, both within the Jewish community and diaspora, but within Israel as well, on the grounds that I'm not from there, I've not experienced that society, and anyway, I'm Jewish, so I've got to stay loyal because criticizing Israel or being against Zionism amounts to some sort of treachery. And that is something that is very sadly stifling a lot of the um, discontent that could be expressed within the Jewish community. Um, I know for a fact that there's, there's a significant minority. It is a minority, but there's a significant minority of, of Jewish people who are very progressive and very much opposed to the occupation, but you know, can't quite find the avenue to express it without the fear of being shut down by the mainstream Jewish community um, and labeled as a wrong sort of Jew. Uh, so it takes a lot of courage. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm a, I'm a beacon of courage or anything. Um, I'm not saying that at all. But, you know, it is difficult and y- you often just face a lot of disrespect and, and consequences within within the community. And that's something that has to change, you know, like 
Israel will not change itself until the diaspora starts piling that pressure from the outside. Because Israel is dependent on the diaspora in many ways. Um, and I think they, they fail to realize that a lot of the time, sadly. Well, you might think that you're not courageous, but it's not like I had to go looking to, to figure out where you stood. You're very open about your views on it. And you're very matter of fact. One of the people that I've learned the most from about this, other than people I know in real life, is Bernie Sanders, who is Jewish. And he has this certain <clears throat> position of privilege that's kind <clears throat> of unique. And he really has reached out and I think educated a lot of people <clears throat> who didn't really get it. <clears throat> but I do know that he has kind of made it okay to criticize what's happening. Yeah. And to say, you're not criticizing every person yeah. that lives there, you know. And and he's been very open. No, I mean that, that's exactly what it's what it's about. It's establishing that sort of distinction between Israel and the Jewish community in a wider sense. I mean, Israel itself is trying to make the two one thing, right? Uh, it's trying to equate uh, being a Jew as automatically being a Zionist. Now that that is a very clever strategy from them because it's about loyalty and it's about you know who you are. Uh, but that's that's fundamentally false, and then I think. That's why it's important for Jewish people like Bernie Sanders or, uh, you know, other progressives to speak out. Yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to put myself in the same, in the same basket as Bernie Sanders. Yeah, I wouldn't dare. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, so, so it's really important. But it's also really important that we're careful about this, uh, that we don't stray into anti-Semitic tropes. There's, there's just a lot of carelessness. Um, people often just, you know, refer to Jews as Zionists. Uh, just say, oh, the Zionists have rigged this election or the Zionists have control of the media or whatever. And, and that is outright anti-Semitism. Yeah, I recently had an experience of being in a left space where people were making comments along those lines. It was, um, yeah, not not great. Um, I don't use the term Zionist, even though I know that it can be perfectly fine. But I think that my experiences of learning about the word nationalism, becoming more familiar with it and and knowing what context it's used in, I know how that's misused. So I'm just going to use other words and I'm going to describe people in other ways because I just don't find it useful. Yeah. Well, it's it's very loaded, you know. And, and the thing is, people just like juggle between the meanings. You know, people can, can often refer to one thing and just switch between Zionist and, and, and Jew or Israeli or whatever without thinking about what the difference is. Uh, I think actually talking about apartheid or talking about the occupier or to, talking about nationalism in a, in a broader sense maybe just makes more sense. Uh, you know, the, the fact is that Zionism obviously was a um, was the ideology for pursuing a, a Jewish state in the historic uh, Israel-Palestine. You know, that's been achieved now in 1948. Um, that mission has been accomplished. Now it's just any sort of nationalism, you know, it's Israeli nationalism, um, which is Zionism. Um, just like any other nationalism, you know, it, it's you can define nationalism in different ways. I mean, obviously, we're all nationalists in this space. We're progressive uh, people who want self-determination for Scotland. Now, there's a lot of progressive Zionists who want self-determination for Israel and protect Israel's right to exist. I am among them. I think that Israel has the right to exist, unquestionably, but are against the occupation and the apartheid regime. Uh, and then there's people that, you know, believe in Jewish supremacy and Israeli supremacy and flag waving of everything and that's the the toxic sort of nationalism so yeah it's it's difficult a lot of the time yeah this is an issue with british politics and also scottish politics that people often dive into foreign policy areas that they don't really understand and try to read them through a sort of 70s socialist lens and 
kind of get lost in it. I mean, you you also work on the the, the Uyghur Solidarity Campaign, so you must um, be constantly inundated with like tankies who are trying to tell you that it's all lies against the good communist CCP. No, I mean, 100%. So, I, so just for a bit of background, I'm also um, one of the co-founders of the Never Again Right Now uh, movement, which is basically a, a student movement across Europe that fights for Uyghur liberation and against the, the Chinese genocide. Uh, we work together with organizations like Stop Uyghur Genocide and, and the World Uyghur Congress and so on. I am very much on the left and I'm in the Unite, you know, actually the most left-wing union. Um, and within that space, I've been getting, yeah, again, quite a bit of abuse on, you know, how dare you stand with the West and the US conspiracy to dismantle the, the Chinese state, you know, the, the beacon for socialism. It's nonsense. It's utter nonsense. And I think a lot of the time we get so tribal that we forget that we can still be socialists, but we can still believe in solidarity and actually not apply it selectively, but when we see oppression, we fight against it no matter what. And also when we see it against our own, like within our own community, if we see bigotry within the, the, the Scottish nationalist community, if we see bigotry within you know, the progressive trade union community, whatever else, we have to call it out no matter what, always. Yes, absolutely. I, I struggle with this sometimes with the, the concept of the united left. And um, I think about how, toxic can be to force people to be next to each other who really don't get along and i always kind of think like isn't the united left more like bumping elbows and be like you do your thing i'm gonna do my thing and we'll just kind of move in the same direction we don't have to lock arms because if we lock arms we're gonna trip each other up you know like i don't know maybe that's maybe that's my naivety yeah it's it's difficult you know because I think the only way for the left to succeed really is to be united. And uh, it sounds cliche, obviously, but there's so many people that are terrified of left-wing governments and are trying to oppose left-wing governments at all costs, whether, whether it's from, you know, corporate billionaire media uh, to, you know, entrenched right-wing in- interests. So, so it's important to stay united. And I think a lot of the time fighting over petty personality differences or whatever else is counterproductive. But, you know, there is no room for bigotry on the left, whether it's transphobia or whether it's homophobia, racism, or whatever else. And look, as soon as that starts to penetrate left-wing spaces, we can't just be silent about it for the sake of unity uh, because that that toxifies the whole movement. So, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. There's something about... I feel constant pressure to be forced to be with other people Mm. who I fundamentally disagree with in, in terms of, like, methods. Maybe that's what it is. Everybody's got a little bit different method, and it's kind of like yeah, we're 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 not we're not going to shake hands and actually get that close. We're just going to bump elbows, which is you know, it's the new it's the new cool thing anyway. So it's <laughs> is, is it a cool thing? I don't know. Yeah. It's a bit twenty twenty. Um, I, I see I see exactly what you mean. I think there is that obsession with nominal unity for unity's sake, uh, but at the same time, you know, having uh, just lots of arguments and maybe emphasizing that can, can be counterproductive. So yeah, it's about striking that balance, you know. Uh, we, we have to get on with people that we don't like, uh, but that's <laughs> easier said than done. It's difficult. You, you've, you've got to keep your eyes on the prize, but yeah. yeah. That, that phrase yeah. has become really toxic to some people. And I think eyes on the prize can mean, it's not like an end goal. Mm-hmm. It's not independence is the prize and that's it. I think it's like, keep your eyes on the common goal. Like we have a common goal and we have to keep that in mind. And like, that means we're not going to let everything go, but it means we're going to pick and choose our battles, maybe. Yeah. And I think that's what spaces like sensibility, like sensibility and, and so on 
do really well. Um, just a little shameless shout out there. Um, well, not shameless because I'm not actually I'm, I'm not I'm not actually part of the editorial team. So if it was you doing that shout out, then it'd be a bit more shameless than that. But but look, um, I think that's what's really important. You know, setting out what independence is actually for, what a vision is. It's no good just selling independence as a as a banner, as a flag without a meaning. Uh, that's not going to inspire people. It's not going to. Uh, it's not going to build a different society just because it's got a different flag on it. Um, so yeah, it's really, it's really important that we set up a vision. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's like how the SNP became a real party that wins was deciding we were fighting for independence on bread and butter issues, not independence for independence sake. So yeah, no. And what the SNP started doing uh, quite successfully is, selling independence as a stability option, mm-hmm. especially after Brexit 2016, it was, you know, look, that doesn't mean status quo. It actually means a better, fairer society, but without sort of crazy radical change. Um, now, a lot of us on the left may not agree with that, with that sentiment necessarily. Uh, we may see that as a bit too timid. Uh, look, again, I say that from a personal capacity, but, um, but you know, it's really, really successful. It br- brings people together around these issues that kind of matter to daily lives, yeah. yeah. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. We did bring it back to independence. Yeah. Yeah, we always yeah. managed to. <laughs> Classic frothing <laughs> nationalists. I'm named after a snowman and I still can't escape from that. Because so, I, I was definitely born after 20, 2013. Yes, yes, so. absolutely. You're just like a child prodigy. 100%. <laughs> Are we going to do a musical suggestion and just sing everything else that we're saying? Yeah, right. Also, Sound of Music is not a great thing to sing when you're talking about Oh, no. Oh, no. We cannot do Sound of Music. Definitely not. Although Erin looks like she's on the Sound of Music set just now. Yeah, the hills are alive. Yeah. (laughs)